Bible, would you like to turn to John's Gospel, uh, chapter 4? Uh, we'll continue our series in, in John. And uh, I've gone for jumper on today, which is always a bit of a risk under the lights, but hopefully that'll be all right. Um, we're going to look at uh, John chapter 4 and verse uh, 43 to the end. I might just read from verse 39. Uh, and then we'll get into, into the passage. Excuse me a moment. So here we go. Reading from verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became Believers, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, they had seen all he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, you may go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. Uh, what we have seen all the way through John's gospel is John's desire to introduce Jesus. Uh, we saw that right at the outset, the, the word made flesh dwelling amongst us. Um, and, and one way or another, John is always shining a light on who Jesus is. That might be some, by virtue of something that Jesus says, by virtue of something that Jesus does, or by virtue of something that people say about him. So John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We saw that in chapter 1. We learn about who Jesus is. Um, uh, we see Jesus going to uh, the wedding and turning water into wine. I was hoping that the kind of follow-up would be kind of polos into donuts or something, but water into wine. And we see there, by Jesus' action, the tremendous generosity of God revealed in that moment um, and, and other occasions. We see Jesus 
having a conversation with a man called Nicodemus and talking to him about being born again. And John explaining, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life, life of the age, uh, the age to come. And we've seen, uh, with Ben's help last week, Jesus having this conversation with the uh, Samaritan woman, um, going to her, uh, engaging her in conversation um, with a profound word of knowledge about her life and, uh, and talking to her about true worship and, and, and drawing her to himself. That's just so wonderful what's happened there. And we're going to see something quite wonderful in this passage as well. We're going to see that in introducing Jesus and looking at another sign that he did, John wants us to be in no doubt, not only does Jesus demonstrate the crazy abundance of God in turning water into wine. I mean, that's what it, that's what it looks like really to me, just like crazy, over-the-top generosity. But he's going to show us in this passage, in this uh, this particular sign that Jesus has life-saving power. Um, life-saving power is at work. We're going to see that because though we never meet him per se, there's reference to the sick son. There is a little boy in Capernaum who is sick. We find out that he's sick in verse 46. We find out that he is close to death in verse 47, and towards the end of the passage, it's explained that he had had a fever. So he, he, has, some, he has a raging fever. He's desperately unwell, uh, and he's in Capernaum. Uh, and his dad is therefore a bit desperate. The desperate dad is a royal official, so he has some influence. He has some wealth, we might presume. And we could guess that he's already tried a number of things, along with his, his wife or family, uh, to, to help their little boy. Um, then we also know that he's heard about Jesus. He's heard what Jesus has done um, in, in Jerusalem. If you go back to, uh, to chapter 2 and verse 23, it says, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. So it's interesting because John just wants to home in on a few of them. Seven, if you like. Um, other gospel writers shed light on more. For John, for some reasons, just picked out a few. So we don't know all that's happened, but Jesus is doing miraculous signs and everyone in Jerusalem at that particular Passover feast knew about it. That's why Nicodemus goes to him and has a chat. In chapter 3, verse 2, he came to Jesus, speaking of Nicodemus, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. So clearly, Jesus has done more than turn water into wine. And it's only, it seems to be only really the disciples that cotton on fully to what happened in Cana and Galilee at the wedding. They understood this manifestation of God's glory. They put their trust in him. Jesus has been doing many other things. This dad knows that. And for us to appreciate how desperate he is, 
we have a little bit of work to do. I don't know if dad's in the room, if you can identify with the sometimes desperate moments. You've got the digital thermometer and uh, it's maybe gone in the child's armpit or mouth or somewhere and uh, it's revealed uh, a raised temperature of 38.1. Yeah, And you're, you're thinking or you're reminded by someone else close by that's about 1.3 above what's normal for that particular child. Okay. And then you look in the cupboards, you realize, honey, there's, there's no cow pole in the house. I mean, that's about as desperate as, as we get. There's no cow pole in the house, but it's okay. I'm going outside. I'm going to walk all the way to that well-known supermarket. I can't wear that much longer like that. Um, I'm going to walk to that well-known corner shop, supermarket, round the corner. I think we're going to be okay, but I am going to be gone for 15 minutes. Back you come in with your best power strut, expecting that kind of, uh, I'll stop there. Um, you know, disaster averted. We got cowpaw, we got ibuprofen just in case. <clears throat> and that's about as desperate as we get. I know there are more desperate situations in life, but now what we've got to do is is imagine, okay, imagine there is someone in your household and they are in desperate need of medication um, and there is a national shortage uh, and, and this cannot be found anywhere in Sheffield. And let's just say in some parallel universe, no one ever discovered petrol or like super powerful batteries. So there are, there's no way, there's no means of transport to get you there. You don't have a horse or a donkey. Uh, no one understands what a car is, or a bus, or a taxi, or a train, or a helicopter. Um, uh, but you catch word, I don't know how, um, maybe there are mobile phones, but okay. Um, this is getting complicated. It's kind of a step back in time, but I'm trying to keep it contemporary, but I've made a mistake. Anyway, you've caught wind that you could find this medication. And let's, let's just drill the point home. The sun's close to death. It's a fever, but it's more than like 38.1. Um, the sun is close to death. This person is close to death. And this medication is not available, but you found that there is some. Now you can choose your town at this point, because we don't know exactly where Cana was, but we've got a rough idea that it'd be about 25 miles away. So you, you could go to Buxton. Hands up for Buxton. You could go to Wakefield, you could go to Retford, or maybe you could go to like Belper. There's like different points of the compass. Okay, point, pick your point, but you're going for a long walk. Um, and you don't know exactly how long it's going to take. And you don't know which pharmacy it is in that town, but you are going. Um, and if you go now, you know, you'll get there before the end of the day, but you might be like trying to get some sleep somewhere before you make it back. I don't know. That's, that's starting to get the flavor of this man's desperation. So when he comes to Jesus, he is, he is begging. He is desperate. And when he gets to Cana, he does meet with the supernatural Savior. We, we fast forward through the story and we see in verse 50 that Jesus says, your son will live. And what we know later on is what that dad realizes is that the moment Jesus said that, is the moment the fever left. 
That is significant. That's a point of the story. Jesus has life-saving power. An awesome, wonderful scenario of, of seeing God by his power through Jesus heal and bless that household massively. And um, we might kind of, as a church, we might miss, the, miss a point here if we, if we never press in in faith for miracles, for healing, for the fact that God can intervene and in an exact moment bring a complete change to a situation that otherwise was desperate. And we might think that benefits us, but we might be aware of the world around us, and we might think, well, without trying to be all doomsday on you, hospital waiting lists, national shortages, an unknown future. And for like 70, 80 years, it's possible that church has kind of bought into the idea The church is there for your spiritual life and maybe it's a bit of a social club, but the state will look after you through the NHS, through other institutions. Um, and so in really strange situations and unusual circumstances, it might need to be God, so let's pray for a miracle. But typically, it isn't because we're wonderfully provided for. And actually, there's just something to be glad of in that. I can remember someone sharing a testimony at the front. Um, a testimony of healing. Um, I don't know, I can't remember if it was a shoulder or an arm or a hip or something, but uh, a real significant injury. The person went to see the doctor or physio, do these exercises every day. And so the person did those exercises every day. And they were testifying, I'm healed, which is wonderful, isn't it? Um, there are, there are times for those kind of moments. Just give thanks for someone who can do an operation. Give thanks for someone who knows the right medicine to prescribe. Give thanks for someone who understands anatomy and can tell us what to do physically to bring a change. So I'm not ruling out those kind of moments where that's the support that we have for one another. Follow the instructions. Well done. Praise God as well. But we might just need to be the kind of community that believes in the supernatural intervention of God to do crazy things because we're not just assuming the government will sort it out. The GP knows what to do uh, and the NHS can sort it. So out of compassion, we see a saviour willing to, uh, to touch people's lives and see transformation. However... If all we spoke about was God's power to do a miracle through Jesus, we might also be missing the point. We would be missing the point. Well, why do I say that? If all we do is come away from this story thinking God might do a miracle, that could be helpful. But there's a couple of reasons why it's not ultimately something to just rest on. As much as I'm keen that we pray for one another and we pray for others to be healed and encounter the supernatural power of God, we've got to dig a little bit deeper sometimes as well to think, well, how are we going to do life? 
Uh, I can think of two reasons. One is painful and one is puzzling. The painful reason is they're just our fathers who have lost sons. And they just are. There's the dad who only had a few moments with his premature born son. His lungs aren't well developed. He's not going to make it. And he didn't. And I'm guessing that father prayed. I'm guessing that father said, my son is close to death. Lord, will you do something? And how many thousands of fathers must there be who said goodbye to their son to go and fight a war and didn't make it back from Dunkirk or didn't make it back from the Falklands or didn't make it back from Iraq or didn't make it back from Afghanistan. And I'm pretty sure that lots of those fathers prayed. So we can't just say, cheer up, God might do a miracle. There's got to be something more profound. I'd also, just the puzzling thing is Jesus' seeming reluctance in this passage. And you kind of think, Jesus is kind of bracing himself. He's pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. How many signs did Jesus do in Samaria? Just now, in chapter 3. None. He had a conversation with a woman, told her about her past, and then everyone in the town invited him to stay for another couple of days so they could hear him talk. Maybe he did do a miracle, but that's not why they're interested in him. And now Jesus is coming back into, his, as it were, his own country, which could be Jerusalem and Galilee, where he would expect faith. But instead kind of encounters a, a welcome of, of sorts, but a kind of just a fascination with signs. So when Jesus gets to verse 48 and says, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. He's just aware. That's, what, that's what's grabbed people's attention. They want the sign. They don't really want to know who I am. They're not really digging any deeper. And if all we're doing is chasing after miracles... Uh, then we might get the same response. Do, do, we, do they not know, want to know who I am? Give us a sign, Lord, and we'll believe in you. Do a wonder, and then we'll follow you. All contingent on, give us this thing, give us this thing. It's possible to miss the point. So how are we to respond to the fact that Jesus has life-saving power? We will be a people that pray. We will be a people who see miracles. But, beneath that, and more fundamental, is to follow in the footsteps, literally I guess, of this royal official. It all hinges 
on verse 50. If this passage has like a center of gravity, it's right there. Jesus hears his request. And he says, you may go, your son will live. The father's been saying, come with me, come with me, come back. Almost that sense in which maybe Jesus is being put to the test. Come and do this miracle, come and do this miracle. And now Jesus is going to put the test on the father and say, go back, your son will live. And what does it say? The man took Jesus at his word and departed. That, that right there is, I think, why John chose this sign. Why John wanted to home in on this example. He wants us to be a people who believe in the name of the Lord. He wants us to be a people, like Gareth was saying, who who will come to that kind of faith. Believing in my heart and confessing with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. John is writing so that hundreds of thousands of people come to faith and know God in this life through Jesus. And so he wants us to see this example and to see what faith looked like in his life to show us what faith looks like in ours. Note this, that first he heard Jesus, he met Jesus. Then he obeyed Jesus. Then... He kept obeying Jesus. And then he saw for himself with his own eyes the full proof. Uh, The evidence, as it were, of Jesus' life-saving power. And so often we want it the other way around. If If I see, if I get what I want, if it happens right now, Then I'll obey. Um, But we see it worked a different way, different way around. How might that principle work out in our lives? Uh, I got four examples, but maybe we'll see which ones we go for. Okay. Taking Jesus at his word just is the point, okay? That's the thing to write down. That's the thing to remember. That's the thing to unpack. That's the thing to discuss with your mates. That's the thing to pray about. That's the thing to ask God to highlight. And, uh, and that is the, the steps to follow. You see, this man's story could become your story when it comes to receiving eternal life, when it comes to uh, receiving the blessing that God has for you. We've seen that in John's Gospel in chapter 1, uh, verse 12 and 13, right at the outset. Yet to all who received him, To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. Uh, We could go further on to chapter 3, I referenced earlier, and verse, uh, verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So receiving Jesus, believing him, is taking taking him at his word in this regard. So like this man, we, 
we meet Jesus. There's an, there's an encounter with him, uh, not that we see him, but that we receive his word and draw near to him. We receive this promise and we accept it. And from that moment on, life is different. Um, and there's a bit more to it, but just look at this man's story. He meets Jesus. He then goes on a journey and our whole life is going on a journey, living out that trust in God. Lord, I believe what you've said. I believe what you've done. I believe, Jesus, that you died and you rose for me, that I might have new life. I believe that in him my sins are forgiven. I believe that because of him, um, and because of the fact that he was given for me, I'm not going to perish, I'm going to have eternal life. And we're living out that trust, living out whatever Jesus says, whatever the Word teaches us. Knowing that one day, like this, like this guy, on that particular day, I presume at some point before he got home, he went to sleep. And you and I, one day are going to go to sleep and not wake up on this earth. Um, we're going to pass away. And then like this man, the next stage will be getting home. And home is a new heavens and a new earth with face-to-face -face confirmation that everything that Jesus said is true. That everything in God's word is utterly reliable. Uh, that's, that is the life of faith. That is a journey of faith. That's what you can start today. And that's what, if you've already started, that's what you're continuing from now on. Now, it applies right there. It applies to all of life. How might it also apply? Not just to receiving life. Got another example um, to do with belonging. To do with belonging to God's people. I was just reminded um, this week of, uh, of Ginny's book, um, Overpowering Nemo, where she writes um, about her journey, her life, and... Um, and draws out some spiritual lessons for it. I can't share it all. Great Christmas present, though. Um, and um, the friend of hers that wrote the foreword um, writes this, When I began to spend time with Ginny listening to her story, I was left without words, um, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and psychologically. Um, she had been dropped from great heights and left to shatter into a thousand pieces, just likening, likening Ginny's life to an, a, a vase, a delicate vase that's been dropped from the highest skyscraper on the planet and landed on the ground, just smashed to smithereens, saying that's not too far off being a very accurate picture of, of Ginny's upbringing. And just leading through, there's a chapter called... Um, Choosing the new, when God has already done so much work uh, to bless her and to restore her, bring her into faith, and bring her into a church family. But that came with some, some challenges. And she describes how she didn't really know how to be in a healthy family or what it really was. And so to kind of be part of a church was just a very awkward experience. But after God had done so much for her, she worked out that at the end of a church meeting like this, rather than just shoot out of the door the moment the meeting finished. She could work out that actually she could just stay where she was and for five minutes she'd be reminding herself of Scripture. 
In particular, there is a psalm, Psalm 68, that says that God sets the lonely into family. You might have also looked at uh, some other scriptures about, actually, when we give our lives to Christ, uh, we do become part of a family. She wasn't feeling that to start with, but she could sit there for five minutes reminding herself of what was true before she then left. And maybe in subsequent weeks, it would creep up to ten minutes. And then subsequent weeks, it would be right, she was just hanging around and having conversation with people. Uh, not because she felt amazing. She writes, she was choosing to stay around despite how I was feeling. And, and that was taking God at his word. You are a part of this family. Because God has made you to be a part of this family. However you feel, God sets the lonely in family. God knits us together as the parts of a body are connected and part of the whole. And if we start with our feelings, we might be saying, Lord, make me feel that that's true and I'll then act on that. Give me a sign, Lord. Let let something else happen. Otherwise, I don't actually believe that I'm part of the family of God. I don't really believe that I belong. And sometimes we can do that, can't we? Therefore, we might be kind of holding ourselves back and giving off vibes that we're kind of not entirely comfortable with other people, so people are not quite sure how to make their approach. The, 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 The fear, the lie, feeds the misunderstanding. So starting with what does God say? What has Jesus done? Do we, do we take him at his word and know I do belong? And this is the family that God has made me to be a part of. I do fit. Regardless of my, my background or what our differences might be. Could be to do with, with serving. I can remember for myself, um, I'll try and be quick this one. Um, just experiencing chronic fatigue as a, as a teenager that was really severe at times. I did life and it was okay, but I got through because I went to bed at 8 o'clock every evening. Apart from Thursday, that's when I watched Top Gear. That's all I managed, okay? The old Top Gear before it got more entertaining. Um, that's how life made sense. And so that affected my thinking. And as I grew up, it, it, it wasn't quite as significant a factor. But still, even into my 20s, um, it could still happen that just like, a, like a, a switch would be flicked. And that was it. I just couldn't do anything. I was spent. I was exhausted. Um, I don't have chronic fatigue now. And I can say, honestly, the peak was over here, like 15 or something. And, and when I'm in my 20s, it wasn't as significant, honestly. But what broke it was, was kind of taking God at his word. Now, this example is a bit flaky because it doesn't say in the Bible... There is no scripture that says, Dan Mayton joined the kids' club team, okay? But that's what I sensed by a number of ways that God was saying to me. And I said, Lord, that's just a really daft idea because that's going to involve Thursday evening and that's going to involve most of Saturday with like 100 children. So, I mean, it, it sounds great, Lord, but I don't have the energy for that. You know what goes on. The Lord decided not to change his mind. And so I'm feeling that God is saying this, and I'm just realizing 
my fear about my capacity could rob me of the purpose and the joy of serving God. It's a bit of a flaky example, but I had to come to the point where I thought, I'm doing this because I think God has told me to. I'm not doing this because I feel I've got the capacity. I'm not doing this because it even feels all that wise. I'm doing this by faith because I, I sense that's what God is in, encouraging me to do. And I'm not going to wait until I feel epic. But I haven't experienced chronic fatigue since that moment. And God leads us. He tests us. You see, I got tested. Are you prepared to believe me? Are you prepared to trust me? Are you prepared to serve me? Are you, going to, are you prepared to lay down your preferences? The funny thing is, the whole scenario started because I was saying to Rach, I think we need to get more time together. So I think you should stop doing Kids Club. And God just spun the table on me. There's another way of spending more time with your wife. You could serve me alongside her doing Kids Club. Ah. Oh. It's just compelling <laughs> and wonderful then to see God at work in scores of children in the north of Sheffield with no knowledge of church, no knowledge of Jesus, but meeting him there. I want to give you one last example because this is the best one, okay? For living, for living life. I, talk, I, I mentioned this already before, but I'm going to mention it again. been reading... Um, the book about to- Corrie Ten Boom called The Hiding Place. Her and her sister's experience in particular, or their, their way of serving God during occupation in the Second World War was to, to save Jews, uh, to hide them and to provide for them so they weren't taken off to concentration camps. Uh, and by virtue of doing that, many lives were saved and, and eventually, um, they were discovered, and they were sent to the same place. And maybe as the tide turned in the Second World War, there'd be lots of prisoners from different camps around Europe who were being moved back into Germany and into one camp. So they, they, that happens, and they arrive in a camp called Ravensbrück with people from all over. And if the conditions have been pretty horrific before, um, they are ushered into... Uh, Barrack 28 in Ravensbrook, uh, a dormitory designed for 400 people in really ropey conditions anyway, um, had become home to 1,400 people. Um, and we, with, with forced labor, with, with plumbing that stopped working a long time ago, with, with broken windows, probably with no heating, with with nine people to a bed, which was a plank of wood. Um, Horrific situation. And so they ask themselves, in those conditions, how can we live in such a place? How can we live with this? How can we live when the worst happens? And their father had died. And it's just grim. Infested with fleas. And then uh, Betsy, who did pass away at Ravensbrook, would, would say to her sister, but God has already given us the answer. Because we've been reading the Bible this morning. God told us the answer when we read his word today. 
And so she reminds Corrie of the passage they looked at, which was 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And we straight away we kind of imagine that, that would be hard for us to say to Corrie and Betsy. That would be hard to say that. But for them, in the situation, they found life in the Scripture. They found the supernatural power of God right there to live life in that situation from the Scripture. And they took him at his word. So Betsy says, that's what we're going to do right now. Let's give give thanks in all circumstances. And here are the things they they found to thank God for. Let's, Let's thank God that we're together. You and I are here in the same place. Let's thank God that we have a Bible. I mean, that was a miraculous part of their story, that they managed to smuggle a Bible into a prison which required a strip search. They had the Word of God. I get this. For the overcrowding, thank you, Lord, that there are so many people here to hear us when we read the Bible. There are so many people who are going to hear the Word of God. And then Betsy said, thank you for the fleas. And Corrie says, you what? But Betsy says, thank you for the fleas. And they put their trust in the Word of God. And they took it to heart. And they did what it said. And it would be however many weeks or months later that a penny would drop for Corrie. The fact that they had fleas kept the guards away. The fact that the guards were kept away enabled them to read out the Bible to hundreds of people in squalid, overcrowded conditions. I don't mean to be trite. And I'm not going to liken anything in this room to that. But that's the point today. Take him at his word. Have some kind of pattern that involves getting hold of his word. And when you get hold of his word, get hold of it with faith in the supernatural and wonderful power of God that this really is the best thing. This really is how we do life. When the worst thing happens, it's how we do life. When we receive the most amazing offer uh, of forgiveness and eternal life with him, it's, it's... how we do life when we're working out how to be a part of a church. And it doesn't always feel easy or it doesn't always feel natural. It doesn't always feel like I fit in. But we're doing this with the Word of God that tells us how to live and it shows us what is true. And when you're weary and worries can cramp your faith to serve, take God at His Word. You can go to 1, Corinthians, 1 Peter 4. You know, serve with the strength that God provides. And meet with God when the worst thing happens. I'm going to pray. We're going to worship. We're going to crack on.